from a director's lens, as a, as a coworker or a colleague's lens, or just as a personal caring about our neighbor's lens, is we need to be able to respect and honor that people feel uncomfortable and feel scared, or some people feel uncomfortable and are scared. And we don't need to belittle that. We need to take hold of that and, you know, help people to where they are to help them kind of progress and grow and feel comfortable and feel safe and see that actions that are going on are going to be able to place them in a safe environment. You know, so it's the emotional psyche because I can practice my social distancing, but what guarantee do I have that you're doing that same thing or that you are handling your life in a manner that's not going to get you exposed, thereby exposing me? You're listening to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Join your hosts, Michael and Jenna, as they discuss all things ORAU through interviews with our experts who provide innovative scientific and technical solutions for our customers. They'll talk about ORAU's storied history, how we're impacting an ever-changing world, and our commitment to our community. Welcome to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Welcome to another episode of Further Together, the ORU podcast. This episode, we are talking more about the COVID-19 pandemic and some of the lessons learned and potentially what we may need to be concerned about if there's a second wave of COVID-19 later this year, assuming that there's an end to the first wave. And we have some folks who've been on the podcast before. We have Freddie Gray, Julie Crumley, Rachel Vasconez, and Jennifer Burnett from our um, preparedness, response, health marketing, health communications team with us. So I'm going to have everyone just go kind of around the virtual table and tell us who they are, and then we'll get started. So Freddie, we'll start with you. Thanks, Michael. Uh, Thanks for having us. Uh, Good morning, everybody. Like Michael said, I'm Freddie Gray. I'm the director of our health preparedness and response programs and health communication programs within the health, energy, and environment uh, larger program. And so I've been with ORU for about 27 years. Um, Our program, you know, a lot of our area focuses on supporting the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, in identifying ways to help mitigate the surge of patients on the healthcare system. And so I'll just kind of leave it at that for right now. Thank you, sir. Julie. Hi, this is Julie Crumley, and I work with research and evaluation with ORU for about the last eight years, and I have been doing that for about the last 17 or so years. Thank you. And Rachel. Good morning. This is Rachel Vasquez. I am a project manager at ORU in the Health Preparedness and Response and Health Communications Group. I have been a public health practitioner for about 18 years. 11 of which have been with ORU. And Jennifer. Hi, Jennifer Burnett. Thanks for having me. I'm a project manager also with ORU. Um, Started working in preparedness and response in 2013, and I'm happy to be here. Thank you all so much for being here. Several important questions to ask you all today. So looking forward to this conversation as we talk about lessons learned and the possibility of needing to prepare for a second wave. We're seeing a lot. I know certainly here in Tennessee, we've started making moves toward 
reopening businesses and states and communities are doing this kind of lifting reduction in social distancing and, and those sorts of requirements kind of on various timelines. But not every state has seen, for example, a reduction in numbers of cases and kind of some of the data we keep hearing about. So as states are making these moves, is there a need for us to be concerned and why or why not? This is Rachel. Anytime that the health of your community as a public health practitioner might have impact, you, you are concerned. You know, the sheltering in place has reduced the case numbers in COVID-19. And so you wanna make sure that you position your public health infrastructure and your public health professionals and your contact tracers and everybody you need to be able to identify cases as they emerge and then isolate them so that you can help um, protect your, the health of your community. Thank you very much for that. So we've been sheltering in place for about two months-ish, depending again on where you live in the country. Um, what have we learned about preparedness and healthcare as a result of this pandemic? And then what might a recovery look like? I know that's sort of two big questions rolled into one. Um, so maybe I'll break it up and say, what have we learned about preparedness and healthcare as a result of where we've been the last few months? This is Julie. I think a lot of what we have learned in general um, is that we really need to listen to the guidance from our local and state public health officials who really know what is going on in their areas and regions. There's a lot of information and data to keep up with and, you know, situations change, you know, hour to hour. So they're the ones that are best positioned to uh, know what we need to be doing and how we need to change. You know, um, it's also one of the things that's important is that it's, it's served as a general reinforcement that it's really important for us to be mindful of our hands. Um, you know, wh what are we touching? You know, are we washing our hands every, you know, every time that we need to be? Are we touching our face? You know, how, how many times have we had a conversation with somebody about, oh my gosh, like I had no idea I touched my face like 50 times in an hour, like, you know, things like that. And just general mindfulness, um, you know, it's really important to continue to do surveillance and to be able to rapidly assess the situations as they are happening in real time in order to provide the best guidance and public health strategies to mitigate um, spread. You know, it's funny, you kind of joked about touching our faces, and I saw a meme on social media that was like, apparently my top three favorite things to do are, you know, touch my face, go to the grocery store, and, you know, <laughs> whatever, exactly. and it's like, okay, <laughs> I think we're all there. Freddie, were you going to say something? Yeah, Michael, I think, I think um, um, Julie raised a really interesting, you know, um, insightful point in that we should, you know, we all should listen to our, you know, local and state, you know, federal officials because in a, in a response, I mean, if you look at things, you know, response happens at the, at the local level. I mean, we at the local level, at the community level are charged to protect our community. 
all the things that are going on and the action and the operation kind of side of the fence happens at the local level. And at the state level, they kind of oversee and manage the response. And then, uh, as you've heard the president talk about, at the federal level, they provide the resources to make it happen. So you can kind of see the really interesting flow where the resources are available at the federal level, flows down to the state level, who oversees the local level response. And the local levels are, are where the finger to the pulse, so to speak, is on there because they see and they monitor and they're tracking or trying to track the local spread. And the local spread in one community may be different than another community, but because of the, the, uh, the proximity of everybody, it can easily change. And it's those numbers at the local level that make up the infection rates at the state level, which gets recorded at the federal level. So it gives you a bigger, bigger picture but definitely at the local level, we need to see what's going on and listen to how, how the, the locals and the state's uh, strategies to mitigate the spread through, like not right now, through non-pharmaceutical interventions like you all were talking about, you know, social distancing, you know, uh, proper hygiene, things of that nature. And, you know, we've talked before kind of some of the safer at home measures were put in place. We talked about local, sort of the local jurisdictions being best prepared to deal with this. And it sounds like that still holds true in terms of they, the folks at the local health department know their communities. They know the people um, that at least understand where the underserved communities in their jurisdiction are. Um, the kinds of questions to ask, the kinds of, you know, that sort of thing. Does that still hold true in your view, Freddie? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think, I think local public health departments have, have for years facilitated and developed and nurtured relationships with key stakeholders in each community. And, you know, the cornerstones, obviously, are public health, health care, emergency management. But there's other people that are heavily involved. I mean, we worked with some communities that faith-based was, was a very big key influencer in that community. We've worked with other communities where the local Walmart was a big, you know, had to say so. And so, you know, you look at the three pillars of public health, health care, and emergency management, uh, but then there are other unique resources uh, within each community, and that's what, again, makes this interesting and challenging at the same time is who are your major players within each area and how do you build those relationships uh you know the time to build those kinds of relationships is not in the middle of a response it's way beforehand and i think public right. health and healthcare and emergency management have done a great job working and building those relationships for years so that when something like this happens they are better in a in a better position to work together and strategically um, help try to mitigate it. Thank you for that. I think it's important to remember, even though the, particularly the media is shifting more toward a focus of reopening and things shifting from response mode to recovery, public health, emergency management, healthcare, there's still, a lot of people are still in response mode. You know, they're still dealing with all of the things that they were dealing with a month ago to, to help mitigate this response. And at the same time, 
looking forward uh, and trying to figure out what's going to be best for their communities as we potentially shift into recovery um, or even, as you mentioned, this um, second wave um, and what that would look like. So they've, they've got a lot on their plates to, to be thinking about. Right. So recovery, quote unquote, is almost a, again, it's a complicated process because you've got Yes, some businesses are starting to open and some social distancing requirements are still in place as guided by public health and the public health practitioners. You know, I know here in, I live in Knox County, Tennessee, so we, you know, our timeline is a little bit different from the state's timeline. It's different from the nation's timeline. Given that we know that there's still response mode happening at the public health level what what does recovery look like in the in the long run i know we keep hearing about the quote unquote new normal is that a thing is that are there things that we may carry with us beyond this particular um, public health crisis and i know i asked like six different questions in there so i apologize for that but you know moving i guess moving forward what does what does it look like um, to get to recovery? This is Jennifer. I'll jump in. When you mentioned, are we going to actually see recovery? Are things going to you know change as a result of the pandemic? I, I think yes, they they are going to change. And um, there's a history in, in public health of cultural um, norms shifting because of something that's happened in the public health emergency or or pandemic. Um, you know, vaccines are a great example. Those have become extremely important. Um, in the public health realm because of their ability to mitigate the spread of a lot of infectious diseases and we've seen that shift into uh, a cultural norm for us as well. So I do think we're going to see things permanently change as a result of what we're dealing with now. And recovery is so much more complicated when you're talking about this type of public health emergency uh, even in natural disasters, you know, recovery is kind of a difficult thing to figure out and it's a lot more long-term than I think a lot of people realize, particularly in the areas that are affected. But because of the complexities of the virus and um, everything going on, we don't have, you know, any medical countermeasures in place right now. We may have a second wave. All of those potentials that could shift us into basically back into full response mode it's hard to talk about truly what a recovery would look like right now, from my perspective. Well, and it makes sense, and we, you know, we sort of keep hearing different things about maybe, you know, the interiors of airplanes will look different, and restaurants might look different, and I think we're, it sounds like anyway, we're still trying to figure all of that out, which I guess what I'm hearing is that may still be an, an adequate assessment of where we are. Right. And to tag team off that, um, you know, and you alluded to this, Michael, that it will look different in different locations, but it'll look different in, in different industries as well. So, you know, we're still trying to figure that out as we move forward. We're still learning every day. Right. So much more for all of us to learn in the days, weeks, months, and maybe even years ahead. So, Freddie, you've been part of ORU's um, coronavirus response team, now the recovery team from the beginning. In terms of bringing employees back to campus and for 
folks who are listening, about 95% of our employees are teleworking, um, which is certainly new for us. It's, I know it's new for a lot of people. Um, but in terms of bringing some of those folks back to our main campus and our South Campus in Oak Ridge, um, we're working on our own timeline. You know, we're not looking at what the state or federal um, governments are telling us in terms of guidelines. And he's made it very clear that we're working on our own timeline. Why is that important from our perspective? You know, great question. Um, and I don't, I don't want to, I don't mean to speak for the coronavirus team, you know, Chad Becker's, you know, facilitating and running and managing that. Um, and I've, I've been really, really super impressed with Chad and Andy and the senior leaders because they've really just not talked the talk. They demonstrated their commitment to safety. Um, Michael, the, the challenging thing on this is that there's just not a switch that you've moved, you know, you've experienced an event, you know, God forbid, like a, a flood or an earthquake where you have a situation that happened and then you do search and rescue, you do, you know, you try to find people um, and then the event kind of culminates and then you're dealing with recovery and getting back to normal. When you have an invisible infectious disease where there is just no stopping and starting point, you can imagine just the challenges that you have to consider of if there's not a vaccine, there's not effective or efficient medical countermeasures to date. Now, I know there's a lot of research and a lot of smart people that are looking and we will find something or they will find something, but um, it'll be effective. But until that time, you still have this virus circulating that you can't see that people can be uh, infected with without signs and symptoms. And so how do you balance? And, and then you flip on that and say, there are a lot of people and businesses that are out of work. I mean, we've been doing this, like you said, for a couple of months now, and the impact on the economy is just extreme. And, and how do you sit and say, you know, when you can't see it and when you see some rates kind of going down, how do you, how do you balance that out and say it's safe to come out and start opening again? Because when right. that happens, several people in the community don't want to go to those establishments because they're scared, and rightfully so, of being exposed. You know, and then so so I've been really impressed with the level of commitment on safety because, like you said, Andy has said we're not going to let the, you know the government dictate when we come back. And when we do come back, we're going to use we're going to evaluate things. We're going to look at not only Anderson County and Oak Ridge, we're going to look at Knox County, Roan County, you know, Lenore City, the areas that populate our Oak Ridge office. And, and you know, what's going on there? What are the rates? What, you know, are people still getting sick? Are the infection rates going down? And, and it's going to be a phased in approach. You've heard Andy on his weekly webinars, uh, webinars talk about, we're going to bring people in slowly. We've got roughly about 7% of the workforce in Oak Ridge that are there now. You know, our first phase may include another 7 or 8% to get us up to 15 and then a couple weeks later. But it's constant evaluation, constant looking at What's going on? Is it safe to bring people back? Do we need to kind of go in reverse mode? And I think if we choose that the communities are, you know, that we see an increased spreading, which, you know, can possibly happen. I think several experts are saying that, you know, expect a second wave in the fall, um, particularly as we're coming out 
of of the isolation, so to speak, uh, and going in more 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 areas. I think it's important to say that if we move forward, and as as you know, based on the the best current data, and allows us to phase in, and then we start seeing higher infection rates, you know, as people get out. I mean, that makes sense. Then I I think if you have to kind of kind of relook and say, mm, reassess and say, I may go back into working from home. I, I think people need to recognize and realize that's not a backward step. That's not a, oops, I made a mistake. That is, that is constantly looking and evaluating the situation and it's evolving, not only on a day-to-day -day basis, but sometimes on a hourly, you know, so to speak. So OER use commitment has been, I've been really, really impressed just looking from a public health lens, but also looking empathetically from a business lens, it's that balance. I mean, I don't envy Andy and the executive leadership in this move because it's just a challenge either way you go. They are looking at that phased-in approach, and I greatly appreciate that. Um, and I think staff, from the input that we've heard through comments and questionnaires and things of that nature, are appreciative of Andy's lens and commitment to safety and saying, let's don't rush in because somebody tells us to. Let's go in, let's be strategic, let's be sensitive, let's be safety focused, health focused, health conscious, but we're not just going to put it in and not reevaluate and continue to look at the evolution of this. We're going to continue to do that and see, you know, what tomorrow takes us in, what next week takes us in, what, the, you know, the months. And so I, I greatly appreciate that lens. Yeah, I have too. It's been really um, heartening as an employee to see that, you know, our health and safety is the primary driver of any decision making. So until there's a feeling that we can do this safely, we're not going to do it. Mm -hmm. Pretty pretty much. So, um, and I, you know, I appreciate that. And I, I know there are other businesses, you know, we've heard stories of restaurants that, you know, yes, I can open at 25% capacity, but I don't want to do that, you know, that sort of thing. So even other businesses, you know, we're seeing sort of not, not necessarily thought just because the opportunity exists to, to make those steps that they're, you know, they're not doing it. So um, health and safety is definitely going to be very important. And this is Rachel, I'm in Atlanta and we've seen that across the board, restaurants not feeling comfortable not having the supplies to open, and we were one of the first states to start opening things up, but we've seen that a lot of restaurants um, have adapted and gone to um, setting up tables outside because maybe there's a little less possibility of enclosed spaces and spreading that way. So we've seen a lot of different approaches, which have been really refreshing to see. Right. So they're at least still, still able to do some business, even if it's not full capacity. And I think a lot of businesses are, you know, I, there's a bookstore that, a local bookstore here in Knoxville that, you know, you can still order your books and let them know when you want to come by and pick them up and they'll be on a magazine rack outside, you know, so everything's still accessible. I, you know, I've, I think it's great that from a business perspective, folks have had to learn to adapt to really just what the situation is so um i guess and that's I thing about being human is we're adaptable <laughs> right and i think it also relates to what freddie and, and um jennifer said is it's the new normal and how do we adapt to that and that's really right. important 
are there things that we can do corporately and personally to be prepared to, you know, once again, mitigate the possibility of a second wave? Um, I, I'd like to, you know, just highlight that we need to think about this differently. We're not going back to normal business as usual as the things were before um, this emerged, before COVID-19 emerged. So we have to have the mindset that how can I take personal responsibility? So for instance, I take my temperature twice a day, not that I've been exposed, but just to make sure. So, mm -hmm. you know, when I go out in the community, then I, I can kind of know if I'm, if I have a temperature or something, so I could possibly infect other people. So, you know, along with that personal responsibility, continuing the hand washing and not touching your face, even though we touch our face a lot during the day, but <laughs> <laughs> things like that and things that, you know, CDC has detailed in their guidance, uh, ready.gov, I've seen some things on their site, um, your local and state health departments have all of those things that you should be doing. Um, continuing to do those things and continuing to be mindful that um, we can't just because states are opening up, we can't continue to do business as usual or or before this pandemic began. Right. I would jump into that too. I mean, this this is one of the more critical times to continue to utilize those non-pharmaceutical interventions because you're increasing exposure across the board as as things open back up. Um, and I would also jump off of what Julie mentioned earlier about some of the legitimate, you know, sources of information and listening to your local and state officials. You know, they're doing a lot of work to pull this data um, and information together to share the best information they can, continuously updating it. Um, I implore people not to take what they read on Facebook or other social media sites as face value. You know, I think that's one of the biggest struggles that we have in this pandemic is trying to make sure that the information that are, that's getting out to everyone, that they're really reading that accurate um, information from legitimate sources. Um, you know, like John Hawkins and CDC and your local health department, so important to make sure you're consuming that type of information versus something that may not be coming from a, a legitimate source. Thank you for saying that. Is there anything that we have missed in this conversation about lessons learned, the prospect of a second wave, anything we've not touched on? Hey, Michael, this is Freddie. I think, hey. I think to me, this whole uh, event, this public health emergency has highlighted the importance of, of mental health and most, you know, a person's mental psyche. I think, you know, there's a common phrase we always use in, in, in uh, communication and in public health or in just general things is perception is reality. How I right. perceive things are my reality, whether or not 99% of the population feels that same way, it's my reality. And I think, I think the emotional psyche of people, you know, the buildings, you know, you've seen buildings open, restaurants open a little bit, malls, but then you've seen a hesitancy of people to go out into those because how do I know that it's safe? How do I personally feel? And I think it's okay to have those feelings. 
I think we, as from a director's lens, as a as a coworker or a colleague's lens, or just as a personal caring about our neighbor's lens, is we need to be able to to respect and honor that people feel uncomfortable and feel scared, or some people feel uncomfortable and are scared. And we don't need to belittle that. We need to take hold of that and, you know, help people to where they are to help them kind of progress and, and grow um, and, and feel comfortable and feel safe and see that actions that are going on are going to be able to place them in a safe environment. And I think that just, you know, so it's the emotional psyche because I can, I can be, I can practice my social distancing, but what guarantee do I have that you're doing that same thing or that you are handling your life uh, in a manner that's not going to get you exposed, thereby exposing me. And so it's all this convoluted things that makes us ask questions about how safe do I feel and can I still stay at home and, you know, just all that extra complicated areas. But I guess my point, and, and I apologize for being long-winded on this one, is that, you know, we do need to recognize that people, some people, and, and, and you know, I don't know what percentage that is, are going to feel uncomfortable, are going to feel uh, uh, just nervous, anxious, and do, we just need to recognize and honor and respect that and then do whatever we can to support them in helping them get back to, air quote, the new normal or back mm -hmm. to where life was, if we can ever do that before COVID-19. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting. I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm one of those people um, who, you know, when all of this social distancing and, and safer at home measures were implemented in, in Tennessee. You know, I didn't go out often, but I wasn't really fearful of, you know, running to the grocery store or, you know, whatever errand I needed to do. But now that more people are out, like I find myself making sure like, my mask is in my pocket and I'm <laughs> before I walk into this building because I don't know who these people are. And, you know, there are a lot more of them now than there were, you know, a month ago. And I don't know that they're taking the same steps I am, you know, um, and just exactly what you said is now that more people are out there, you know, and whether they feel confident about it or not, they're there in, I, I feel like I feel less safe than I did before, if that makes sure. sense. So, okay. Perfect sense. So I personally recommend if you have to go out, wear a mask, because at least you can protect other people from yourself. Well, thank you all again so much for spending this time and helping us better understand what's been happening with the COVID-19 pandemic. And I look forward to having non-pandemic related conversations with you all in the future. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you again, Michael. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks so much, Michael. Thank you for listening to Further Together, the ORU podcast. To learn more about any of the topics discussed by our experts, visit www.orau.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at ORAU, and on Instagram at ORAU Together. 
If you like Further Together, the ORU podcast, we would appreciate you giving us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your reviews will help more people find the podcast.